morning, Grace. Mark chapter 2. Now, before we go any further in Mark, I have to tell you something that Mark just assumes that you and I know. And I have run out of time the last several sermons to share this, so I kept cutting this section out of my manuscripts. But we can't go any further in Mark without talking about this. We're going to get some insight today into what it was like in Jesus' day. And what modern-day Bible readers may not know is that there was a big difference between the northern and the southern parts of Israel during Jesus' day. Now, of course, we should not be surprised by this because there are cultural differences between New York and Florida and Texas and California and Alabama and Wisconsin. There are cultural differences between California and Texas. And I was reminded of this yesterday when a friend of mine posted on Instagram that there were some people, his friends, blowing up some explosives by shooting guns into them out in this field. And it was shaking these houses and it was on the news. And they said, it's okay, everybody's okay, nothing to worry about. But that's what you do in Texas. You shoot your guns at big containers of explosives just for fun. Now, that wouldn't work here. There are cultural differences. And there are different accents in all of those places that I just mentioned too, right? Things are different. Cultures are different. Accents are different. And differences can make things messy. And Mark expects us to know this as we read his gospel. In fact, his narrative is moving toward Jesus, who is from Nazareth in the north, clashing with the religious leaders who are in Jerusalem, who are from the south. Jesus was not just different from the religious leaders because he was the son of God, God incarnate. He was different in the way that he spoke. Jesus had a northern accent. He was from what was considered a podunk area. His cultural upbringing was different from fellow Jews who were being raised in the south of Israel. So we have to keep this in mind as we read Mark's gospel. We have to keep this in mind as we read any gospel. You can see on this map that the town of, that Jesus is from is in the north. At the top of the map, uh, Nazareth has a star on it. And the arrow there points to Capernaum, the village that Jesus lived in after he launched his ministry. And at the bottom of the map, you have Jerusalem, which is where that star is. And then there in the middle, you have Samaria. Now, Mark just assumes when we read his gospel, when we read the Bible or any gospel, he assumes that we know that there were cultural differences between each of these geographical locations. Up north, where Jesus was from, it was a mixed area. You had believers, Jews, Israelites, who lived in very close proximity to pagans, to heathens, to unbelievers. There were plenty of large pagan cities in the area surrounding the more conservative areas and villages of Nazareth and Capernaum. And Galilee in the north and Judea in the south were both separated by Samaria. And the predominant residents of Samaria were a people who were half Jewish. They were half Jews. So you can imagine their southern and northern neighbors looked down upon them because they were just half Jews. So the Judeans in the south despised their northern cousins. 
They saw them as backwoods rednecks who lacked sophistication and they considered them worldly because of the influence of the surrounding Greek cities. And then in the north, the Galileans spoke Aramaic, the common language that everyone spoke, but they had a certain twang to their accents. Their accents were actually the butt of the jokes of their southern brothers and sisters. So think of maybe somebody from Alabama or Georgia. So the Judeans made fun of their northern cousins because they were rednecks. And this is why when Jesus is arrested in Mark chapter 14 and Peter denied knowing Jesus, those who heard Peter speak knew that he was a Galilean. Why? Because of his accent. The Judeans in the south also despised the northern Galileans because they thought they were too lax in their commitment to the Lord. After all, those in the north lived about 70 or 80 miles away from the temple in Jerusalem. If they were really serious about serving Yahweh, why did they live so far away from the temple? And why did they live so close to all of those pagan cities? And so a Jew from Galilee in the north, visiting Jerusalem in the south, though among his brothers and sisters, he was still out of place. He was as much as a foreigner as a Texan ordering pasta while visiting Jersey Shore. His accent would give him away as one of those rednecks from up north in Podunk, Galilee. Those Jews who aren't that serious about God and who lack a certain sophistication. This is the cultural backdrop and this is where Mark's gospel is headed. This redneck rabbi named Jesus from up north will not just have an accent and lack a certain sophistication. He's from an area that's not too serious about God because they're surrounded by all these pagan cities. And to top it all off, this redneck rabbi will claim to be the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, the Savior that the nation of Israel had been waiting for all these years. And that's why in John's gospel, when the disciples tell Nathaniel that they have found the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Bakersfield? Sorry if you're from Bakersfield. I, I inherited that joke. I, I have no beef with Bakersfield. I could name a town in Oklahoma or Texas just as easily. If you're from Bakersfield... I'm sorry. (laughs) Mark has structured his narrative around a geographical framework, dividing the north and the south, culminating in the confrontation of Jesus from Galilee and the religious establishment of Jerusalem. Mark's gospel is moving towards an all-out war between Jesus from the north and the religious leaders in the south. And if we read Mark without this background, if we read any of the gospels without this background, without this understanding, then we will miss Mark's point. This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. So this is going to make for a good story. This is going to be a series that pulls you in and makes you want to binge watch it. Mark wants us to know that Jesus has a hometown. He has roots. He has a history. He's from a podunk town in the backwoods of Israel. And the religious leaders will use this to try and discredit him. The Pharisees and the scribes wanted 
a paint-by-the-numbers Messiah according to their ideas. And Jesus was not matching up. Who was he? Some redneck Messiah from a podunk town? Who is he to say that he forgives sin? Why isn't he destroying Rome and leading a revolution to overthrow the government? And why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he hanging out with Gentiles, with pagans? They wanted a paint-by-numbers Messiah. Their own ideas. Listen, be careful that you don't fall into this trap. Be careful that you don't have your own version of Jesus that is paint-by-the-numbers. He can't and he will not be molded into the puny versions of him that we create, that we want. Be careful that you don't create your own version of Jesus that promises to give you your best life now. Let the scriptures paint your picture of Jesus. Only that picture will save and satisfy you in this life and in the next. So we're in the middle of this section in Mark where we have five stories beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, where we'll end today. And they display this steady intensification of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. In the first story that we saw several weeks ago with the paralytic, the antagonism between Jesus and the religious leaders remained largely unspoken. Because Jesus read their minds, if you remember. And he discovered the animosity that was in their hearts. And what we saw a few weeks ago with Levi and the tax collectors, and now moving forward, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees will result in verbal confrontations. And by the time we get to chapter 6, I mean, verse 6 of chapter 3, today it will lead to a plot against Jesus' life. Their animosity will lead to a very real death threat against Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What we'll see today as we binge watch Jesus is something that we all need more of in our lives. And it's this, rest. The good news of the gospel is that God offers rest to us. We can rest now in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. No more treadmills trying to earn his favor. No more working hard at just being good enough. All we have to do is rest. And that's good news for weary, exhausted, and beat up sinners. Look at verse 23 of Mark chapter 2 and hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
So you get the idea at this point in Mark's gospel that the Pharisees are following Jesus around, watching closely to see what he says and what he does. As I mentioned last week, I think when they asked Jesus about fasting, I think the Pharisees put the people up to it to ask him. But now we're at the point where they're interacting with him directly, watching closely to see what he says and what he does. And then it happens one day. They get some dirt on him. Well, actually, they get some dirt on his disciples because Jesus never sinned. He never broke any of God's law. He kept all of it. But the Pharisees will take what they can get, so they jump on this chance to see the disciples breaking the Sabbath. And so it's the Sabbath, which starts at Friday at sundown and goes all the way till Saturday at sundown. That's the Jewish Sabbath. And Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields, closely followed, obviously, by the Pharisees. And the disciples get hungry, and so they just reach out for a snack, and they pluck some heads of grain and start eating. No biggie. Part of the culture at that time was that you could grab a handful of someone else's grain as long as you didn't fill up a bucket or a wheelbarrow with it. So what they were doing was fine. Everyone did it. If you were out walking and you didn't have a granola bar with you or some snack with you, you could grab a handful of somebody else's grain to hold you over until dinner. God's word allowed for this. Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So what the disciples are doing here was very acceptable. God made a provision for this in his law. It wasn't a big deal. What was a big deal is that this occurred on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had all kinds of rules and regulations about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Of course, God had commanded his people to keep this Sabbath holy and not do any work on it. But the Pharisees took that commandment to a whole other level. As I said last week, the Pharisees elevated their own man-made rules and regulations all the way up to God's law. And so their rules and their regulations were equal with God's law. So if you broke their rules and regulations in their eyes, you were breaking God's law, you were sinning. And they had all kinds of rules that concerned the Sabbath, specifically what entailed working on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees came up with 39 things that they considered to be working on the Sabbath. For instance, no plowing, no hunting, no butchering, couldn't tie or loosen knots, you couldn't sew more than one stitch, you couldn't even write more than one letter of the alphabet, you couldn't walk more than 1,999 paces, which was about 800 meters, they would consider that working on the Sabbath. And thus, you would be breaking the fourth commandment. And so playing in the Super Bowl on Super Bowl Sunday would be frowned upon by the Pharisees because you could only go up and down the field about eight times before you met your limit of walking on the Sabbath, and then you were officially working and thus breaking the fourth commandment. You could not set a dislocated foot on the Sabbath. So if you're playing the Super Bowl and you twist your ankle and break your ankle, doctors couldn't work on you. You couldn't repair a fallen roof on the Sabbath. The rabbis tried to come up with a rule for every single, every conceivable thing that might happen on the Sabbath. So if a building fell down, they had rules and regulations that only a certain amount of rubble could be removed to see if there were any victims underneath 
dead or alive. And if some were alive, they could be rescued. But if someone was dead, you had to leave the corpse there until sundown. So you get the idea. These guys were over the top and out of control. They make micromanagers look like saints. And the reason they did this was because they wanted to protect God's law. They wanted to protect the Mosaic law. They wanted to protect the Ten Commandments and all 613 case laws. So they came up with all these rules and regulations that they referred to as a fence. They called it a fence around God's law. So they built this fence around God's law. And they believed that if we can keep you from breaking the laws on the outside, any of those laws, then you won't break God's laws on the inside. The Pharisees believed that if people obeyed the fence of rules that they had set up around the Mosaic law, then... They wouldn't break God's law, and therefore the nation wouldn't go into exile again. And so when Jesus and his disciples are walking through the fields, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they're breaking at least two rules. They're probably walking too far on the Sabbath, and they're plucking grain, which was considered work. Again, the disciples were not breaking God's law, but they were breaking the man-made rules that the Pharisees had set up. Look again at verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, Jesus knows his Old Testament. He was raised on flannel graphs in Sunday school. So he brings up this Old Testament story that he knew that the Pharisees knew. Jesus appeals to a time in David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David and company were on the run from King Saul and they had no food and they were starving. And so David entered into the holy place, into the tabernacle in search of food. And he asked the priest, can we have the bread of the presence that is on the inside in the holy of holies? And the inner, in the inner part there, these 12 loaves of bread would be inside the tabernacle they were off limits to anyone except the priest. But since David and his men were starving, they ate the bread. And here's why. Because it was a sanctity of life issue. An exception was made. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This was an exception to the rule what David did. It would go against the heart of God's law to allow someone to starve to death just because they weren't a priest. The human thing to do would be to let someone eat the forbidden bread if they were starving. Again, an exception to the rule was made based on the sanctity of human life. That's Jesus' point here. But then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter concerning the Sabbath. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus says here cuts right to the heart of the mindset of the Pharisees. People are not made for Sabbath rules. People are not made for Sabbath regulations. People are not made for rules and regulations. The Sabbath was actually created by God in order to bless humanity and enhance its well-being. It was a gift not something given to us so that we would worry about how many paces we walked. The Sabbath was given by God 
so that we could be replenished once a week, so that we could be restored once a week, so we could be rejuvenated once a week, so that we could be repaired once a week, so that we could get recalibrated once a week because we need it at least once a week. It was not given to be some religious weight and burden, which is what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day had done. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke said, The Sabbath is a reminder that God does not value humans by their ability to produce. We are not machines. We have worth apart from what we produce. It is a difficult lesson. It's a difficult lesson to learn, isn't it? As I was meditating and studying on Genesis 1 last week and the week before, I was struck by this idea. Genesis 1 was written by Moses to a people who came out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery. They did not know how to rest. They had to learn how to rest. The Sabbath was a very generous gift of Yahweh, the Lord, given to a weary people who simply did not have a category for rest. They didn't know what that meant. All that they knew was 400 years of back-breaking labor in Egypt, working tirelessly for Pharaoh. All that they knew was work. All that they knew was labor. Sweat was their best friend. They had to learn how to rest. And we do too. We have to learn what it means to rest because if we're honest, we are not good at it. We're good at go, 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 go. What we're not good at is resting. Just look at your weekends. What does your weekend look like? Go, 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 go. Do, do, do. And what we need more of in our life, what God wants us to do once a week is to rest. Let me give you some good news today. God gave you personally, individually, as well as corporately as a church body, as his people. God gave you a gift. God gave you one day a week out of seven. He's not stingy. Give me one week. You can have six. Pretty good deal. He gave you one day a week to get replenished and get restored and get rejuvenated and get repaired and get recalibrated. He gave the Sabbath so that you could gather with your brothers and sisters and get recalibrated with the gospel. He gave you the Sabbath as a gift to rest, to spend the day worshiping and resting to save you from running around and exhausting yourself and probably in the process making yourself go to an early grave. John Walton, another Old Testament scholar, said, we recognize his role of creator God by our observance of the Sabbath in which we consciously take our hands off the controls of our lives and recognize that he is in charge. One day a week, you can be reminded, because you, like me, often forget that Jesus is in charge. I don't know how we forget that, but we do, don't we? Somehow we think, I've got this. And then suffering comes, and we're put right back in our place. 
one day a week, we can take our hands off the control of our lives and be reminded who is really in charge. So let me ask you, why would you want to miss this? What Jesus says in verse 27 applies directly to us. The Sabbath is a gift, a gift from a good God who wants you to enjoy his rest, to rest in the finished work of his son for you, to rest in the fact that there is now no condemnation. Condemnation bounces off of us. When condemnation from the devil comes into our life, when shame and guilt comes, boom, it just bounces off because there's no condemnation for us, right? Because we're in union with Jesus. Why would you want to miss out on being told this? Why would you want to miss out on resting in the finished work of Jesus for you? And if you take Sabbath rest seriously, God will give you extra vacation days. Did you know that? If you observe the Sabbath, you get extra vacation days. Who doesn't want that? Jesus offers you extra vacation days. Would you like some? Well, guess what? The Sabbath offers you that once a week. Ray Ortland says this, The point of the Sabbath is a dress rehearsal for a future eternity of glad rest in God. But in our frantic modern world, the Sabbath offers wisdom that has lasted since the beginning. Genesis 2. It is not written on our calendars as much as we are built into its calendar. It seems to be part of the God-created rhythm for weekly human flourishing. If we did set apart one day each week for rejuvenation in God, we would immediately add to every year over seven weeks of vacation. And not for whatever, but for worship for community, for mercy, for an afternoon nap, for reading and thinking, for lingering around the dinner table with good jokes and tender words and personal prayers. If you observe the Sabbath and you take a day to worship and rest on Sunday, that adds up to over seven weeks of extra vacation every year. If that is not proof that God is good, I don't know what is. We need the Sabbath. Why? Because we're all tired, aren't we? We're all worn out. You know what the most popular place on Sunday morning is at church? Where is it? It's right over there where what? The coffee is, right? If we ran out of coffee one week, I think the zombie apocalypse would start because that's the most popular spot at Grace on Sunday morning. Why? Because we're all tired. Because we're all exhausted. Because we're all worn out. Because we go and we go and we go and we go and we go. And then Monday morning comes again because he's so faithful. Monday morning comes again and we just want to break. And that's one reason why we don't have 10,000 programs here at Grace. We know that life is busy. We don't want as a church to add to your exhaustion. We're very, very intentional about this. What we don't want to do as a church is add to your exhaustion. So we limit the programs that we do here so that we're not burdening you and dumping more things on your plate. You're already busy. You're already booked tight. You already need a vacation. 
And God knew that we would work ourselves to death. So he came up with a vacation plan for humanity. It's called the Sabbath. Sunday now. Saturday in the Old Covenant. God knew that we would work ourselves to death. So he came up with a plan to give us rest. One day a week, we can gather with our church family on Sunday, hear the good news of the gospel, get recalibrated, get refreshed, and then do it again in seven days because we need it again in seven days. Would you like seven extra weeks of vacation? Celebrate the Sabbath. Come and get connected to the rest of the body here at Grace and have your memory restored. Come and be reminded of who you are in Christ. Come and get connected to the rest of the body and be reminded of your true identity, which is here, not out there. Come to church on Sunday, fellowship in gospel community, sing your heart out to Jesus, hear the gospel preached, get refreshed, and then go home and take a nap. Amen to that, right? Take a nap. I think we're going to nap in heaven because I think God loves naps. And we're, we're not God. He doesn't need to sleep. We do. Naps, I'm intending to nap a lot in heaven. If you can't find me, you know where I'll be. Don't interrupt me. I told my kids last night as I put them to bed, I said, you know what? we we got to go to bed. And I said, but here's the, here's the great thing about heaven. I said, I think we'll, we'll nap there. But I said, you know what? Heaven, I said, it's going to be like Christmas morning every day. That feeling of anticipation and excitement and joy. And you're just so giddy. And you're just like, I can't wait to walk out to the living room. What did I get? That is going to be heaven every day. And I said, you'll take a nap in heaven. And I said, and you'll wake up. And that feeling will be there again. Every single day. What's it like today? What am I going to discover about Jesus today? What am I going to discover about sharks today that we didn't know on the old earth? What, what's it going to be like today? That's heaven. And we can get a, we're in a dress rehearsal for that now by celebrating the Sabbath and taking a nap. Or you can read a good book or show mercy to those who need it. Or linger around the dinner table with good jokes. Right? And tender words and personal prayers. Why miss out on this? Why miss out on the gift of Sabbath rest and renewal? Why give up seven extra weeks of vacation? Why miss this opportunity to gather with your church family and hear about Jesus, hear about forgiveness, hear about heaven, and hear that it is finished? I thought about it this morning, and it struck me. We should be the most free and relaxed people on earth. We should slide into our weekend and think, man, I've got it made. I'm going to rest. I'm going to take a nap and laugh with my friends over dinner and show mercy to people. We should be the most free and relaxed people. Yes, we do all come in here burdened every week. And that's why we need to be reminded every week that it is finished. We need to be reminded that God's grace is big enough to cover our mess. We need to be reminded each week that God does not deal with us according to our sins. We need to be reminded each week that we have been wildly forgiven. And if you observe the Sabbath and you take a day to worship and rest, it adds up to over seven extra weeks of vacation every year. Now, try adding that to your gospel presentation. 
Somebody should make a bumper sticker or a t-shirt that says, Come to Jesus. He will give you seven extra weeks of vacation. You want an opportunity to reach your neighbor with the gospel? Tell them that. I worship a God who gives me seven extra weeks of vacation every year. What about you? Boom. Opportunity to talk about Jesus. Let's put that on a t-shirt. Come to Jesus. He offers you seven extra weeks of vacation. Put it on a coffee mug, and I guarantee somebody will ask you about it. Why? Because everybody's tired in our world. Everybody is worn out. We all go and go and go, and Monday morning comes, and we just want a break. And God knew that we would do that, so he came up with a vacation plan for humanity, which is the Sabbath. Now, you will have to work hard to rest, as our prayer of confession and celebration pointed out. I know that sounds strange, but you will have to work hard in order to rest. You'll have to work hard to going to bed early so that you won't be tempted to sleep in for church. You'll have to strive to get your family here every week. And if you happen to work on the Sabbath, as some people have to, you need to find another day in the week to rest. We all need rest. We all need Sabbath. Why miss joining your church family where you can be reminded each week that you have to fight to rest? Why miss being reminded each week that you need to strive to rest from trying to earn God's grace, to strive to rest from busyness, to strive to rest from worry, to rest from stress about the future? Well, the Pharisees are not done with Jesus. In fact, they're about to hatch a plan to take him out, to kill him. So look at Mark chapter 3 now, beginning in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And Jesus looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So it's another Sabbath day and the Pharisees are following Jesus around again. And this time they are in the synagogue to worship and hear from God's word. And the Pharisees see a man with a shriveled hand and they're now watching Jesus like a hawk to see if he will try to heal this guy on the Sabbath. They wanted and they needed evidence to try to get rid of Jesus, so this was their chance. What they didn't know, know or forgot is that Jesus, as the Son of Man, as the Lord of the Sabbath, as God incarnate, he knew their hearts and he could read their minds. And so Jesus called the man over. I love that it just says, come here. Oh, I'd love to see Jesus in this moment. He's looking at them with anger, and then he just turns and says, come here compassion and mercy and kindness. He's so gentle. He calls the man over and he straight up then asks the Pharisees, is it allowed to do good or bad on the Sabbath? You tell me. Can you take someone's life or kill them on the Sabbath? But they were silent. And Jesus was angry with them because their hearts were hard. And they of all people, as the spiritual leaders of the nation, should have been compassionate. But they had hate in their hearts. And so Mark tells us that Jesus looked around at them in anger. I would love to have seen his expression. What did his face look at? Look like when he looked at them with anger. But then, turning, 
and compassion and kindness and gentleness to this man with the shriveled hand. And he calls him over and says, come here. And then he heals him. And then the Pharisees were done. They had enough. They wanted to see Jesus dead. They were so blind that they didn't see it. Jesus was bringing life on the Sabbath. And they make plans to do what? Kill him. Is it lawful to save a life or kill on the Sabbath? Jesus saved this man's life, if you will. He restored this man, and they went to murder him. Instead of celebrating, instead of rejoicing that this man was healed, they actually go and conspire with the Herodians about how they can actually kill Jesus. They make plans to murder a man who saved a life on the Sabbath. The irony. And they want Jesus dead so bad. They had to conspire with some other people that they can't stand, the Herodians. Well, who were they? The Herodians, the Herodians were Jews who were supporters of Herod, who, as we saw in our Christmas and Advent series, was a crazy, psychotic leader. Herod was a psycho. And the Herodians were Jews who did not like how stuffy the Pharisees were, and you can't blame them. They didn't like how stuffy the Pharisees were. They wanted to embrace Roman values. They were progressive and liberal And the Pharisees hated them, and they hated the Pharisees. But these two opposing groups come together to conspire to kill Jesus because he is a threat to both. Jesus is a threat to Rome and Herod and the Herodians who fear that he will take over and set up his kingdom and rule as the long-awaited Messiah and Son of Man. And Jesus is an obvious threat to the Pharisees because he does not play by their rules. So these two enemies come together and they start making plans how they can kill Jesus. The Pharisees demonstrate that religion will absolutely wear you out. It will run you ragged. And it will puff you up and anger you because people will not be doing as you expect. And so the Pharisees start exhausting themselves and working hard to find ways to kill Jesus. But there's a deeper rest that we need besides physical. It's not just the physical rest that we need. We need soul rest. The Pharisees were all about religion. The Pharisees' mantra was, if I perform for God, if I obey, then I am accepted. But Jesus comes along and declares the good news of the gospel, which is the complete opposite of religion. The gospel says, I'm fully loved, I'm fully accepted in Christ, therefore I will obey. And those are two completely different worldviews. Which one do you live under? What do you believe? If I perform for God, if I obey, then I am accepted? Or I am fully loved and fully accepted in Christ, therefore I will obey. The Sabbath is one of the clearest signs of the gospel. We accomplish absolutely nothing And God still loves us. The Sabbath challenges all of our, I got to do more. I got to try hard instincts that are built into our DNA. On the Sabbath, we accomplish absolutely nothing. We do nothing and God still loves us. Yes, we desperately need physical rest. We are exhausted. We are worn out. But we also need a deeper rest a rest from trying to earn God's favor. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says to you and to me today, come here, rest.
And Tim Keller says, when Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus means that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of the deep rest that we need. He has come to completely change the way we rest. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste of the deep divine rest we need, and Jesus is its source. When Jesus says, in effect, as the Lord of the Sabbath, I can give you rest, what does that mean? When Jesus calls you to rest, he is calling you to take time off, physical and mental time off, from work on a regular basis. But there's another level of rest, a deeper level. There's a work underneath our work that we need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. It's the work that often leads us to take refuge in religion. Most of us work trying to prove ourselves, to convince God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. That work is never over unless we rest in the gospel. On the cross, Jesus was saying of the work underneath your work, the thing that makes you truly weary, this need to prove yourself because who you are and what you do are never good enough. That is finished. He has lived the life you should have lived. He has died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you. And that's what the table before us is all about. It's all about his life, his death. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we eat the Lord's Supper today. We're going to eat and rest. All the self-justification is over, Christian. All the trying to prove your worth, wherever you go, I gotta prove my worth, that I have value, that I'm important, that I'm loved, that people like me. All the trying to please others and working yourself to death. All the trying to be good enough. Come to Jesus and rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, you're so merciful and kind. We are so slow to learn, and you're so patient and kind. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be wrapped up in religion. We want to rest in the finished work of your Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit, would you help us to do that today? Help us to laugh, dance, and sing, rest, Take a nap, show mercy to others, read a good book. And may we glorify you and enjoy you as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.